Welcome to The Beauty of Conflict, a podcast about how to deal with conflict at work, at home, and everywhere else in your life. I'm Susan. And I'm Chris Marie. We run a company called Thrive Inc. And we specialize in conflict resolution, stress management coaching, and building strong, thriving teams and relationships, both in person and virtually. On this podcast, we'll be sharing tips, tools about how to make your team, your relationship, and even you work more effectively. You can find us at thriving.com. That's www.thriveinc.com. Or follow us on LinkedIn at Thrive Inc. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Chris Marie Campbell. And I'm Susan Clark. And today we have a very special guest, Emil Reddy, whose area of focus is diversity and inclusion. Emil goes by they, them, and is a trans person of color. I met Emil when they were leading a diversity and inclusion workshop sponsored by The Haven up in Canada, and I loved their point of view, so wanted to interview Emil on our Beauty of Conflict podcast. There's a lot in this that I think is very rich, and so I was excited because I missed the workshop. This is Susan speaking now, and so I was excited about the interview, and a couple things that really struck me about this interview was when Emil, when they talked about this use of the word self-determination. And the idea that in 2020, that was a word for them that was very critical. Partially the meaning of it, meaning that each person should be able to determine what joy looks like to them. And also this concept of, they introduced me to this idea that empowerment might not be the best word, that the preference for enablement and even that didn't quite fit as we talked about it. I really appreciated Amel explaining that From their perspective, the idea of walking with someone, which I've always thought was powerful, it really made sense through this lens of inclusion. Like if I am the person who has the power, empowerment sounds like I'm going to give you my power or something versus walk alongside you when you, whoever it is, finds theirs and determines how they want to find joy. I love it. Yes. And you'll notice that Emil goes by they, them, and that is a learning lesson and how they explain why it's so important for us, all of us to share our pronouns. And you can see us even wrestling with it to make sure we get it right. Well, and I loved how in the, uh, towards the end, you'll get, you know, most of the time when a mistake is made, there's a tendency to have someone maybe correct, especially around something like pronouns. And then of course, I want to say, I'm sorry. And they were introducing me to the idea that that actually is somewhat exhausting because (laughs) Emil was saying they might then feel like they have to take care of me. And what's way more useful is to say thank you so we can just move on. Yes, I love that. So So I hope you enjoy this episode. It is jam-packed with very interesting information. So we're excited to have you, Emil. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Now, one of the things that I just kind of framed you up so people have some context, but I know you also talked about introducing yourself more in a diversity and an inclusive way. Could you talk Mm. more about that and maybe even give us your example? Yeah, I think often biographies are so focused on, you know, the number of years you've been doing the work, your level of education, things that, you know, we really center privilege and really center what I would consider kind of a different perspective, a more Western perspective as a way that than how I kind of grew up. I've disrupted that and created something called the lens. So really looking at disrupting the bio. 
where it centers diversity of perspective, it also really becomes is really transparent about my own biases. I will always see the world through my lens, through my perspective. Therefore, I will have biases. And my hope is that people can really figure out where they're coming from in their own perspective as well. So I coach people and organizations on creating their own lens. And so my lens mm-hmm. starts with my identity, starts with who I am. I'm a trans person of color. I am a child of immigrants and a grandchild of indentured laborers. And essentially, I came to be because of British colonization. And I know that that is a really heavy topic. But for me, I always find it really interesting. My grandfather would never have crossed the Himalayas to meet my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, I mean. Uh, Instead, they met on the sugarcane fields as indentured laborers on the island of Fiji in the South Pacific. And if not for that, they would not have met. My mom then married uh, a person who is Pacific Islander Black or Native Fijian. And, you know, I'm part Native Fijian, I'm part Nepalese from Nepal, and I'm part Indian from Rajasthan. So I'm a product of, of that. And my family grew up in the South Pacific. And so that's a huge part of who I am. It also really, it really kind of epitomizes this idea of diaspora of this idea of me feeling like I belong everywhere, yet mm. have no true connection to a specific land. Mm. I also think it's made me a bit more empathetic in my work in understanding where people are coming from. Oh, that is powerful. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. imagine if each of us took that sort of lens, you know, developed that lens and communicated that. It's a very different way of, gives me a whole different flavor of who you are. Which mm-hmm. I- yeah, and there's other aspects of the lens as well, where that was my background. And then I there's an aspect of like how you make a difference in the world. So for me, mm-hmm. I identify as a friend and a bridge builder, because I think the way that I de- define my work, much like Barack Obama, actually, is <laughs> as, a, as a community developer, where the hope is that I build bridges for, you know, to people, to other people, to people, to other resources or organizations. But I never walk across that bridge with anyone. I build it. I provide the skills, the tools, the resources. I'm there to like absolutely support, but I'm there to witness someone's journey as opposed to take that journey with them. Hmm. Can you define just, Emil, what the difference is between taking that journey with them and supporting them? Like Mm. like that distinction? I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so often, you know, this is my perspective, but so often marginalized and equity seeking groups, a lot of times there have been moments in history and even in current day where organizations and people that are very well intentioned will actually, you know, seek out equity seeking groups, marginalized folks, people that are really wanting to to create and self-determine what, what help and support looks like and have folks that actually take their hand walk Mm -hmm. them across that bridge, you know, to a bridge that they've determined they need to resources that they've determined that that are required. And we know that that type of support isn't sustainable. And Mm -hmm. we do know what is sustainable is, you know, working alongside of a community and collaborating with them to help define, or they will define what they need. And then if you are a person that has access to resources or access to privilege to open up those doors to build those bridges to those resources because of your relationships and you can leverage that of course the community they they themselves need to then walk across that bridge that they have self-determined is the right one for them it's a real empowerment model making sure people are doing what they are wanting to do yeah walking on their own two feet Mm -hmm. kind of yeah and you know not to 
to be nitpicky. I try not to say empower, but rather enabled simply because empowerment really, really oh. comes from a place where I have power to give you, right. where I really feel that everyone has their own power. And in fact, the word that I, or the you know, compound word that I, of, of 2020 for me was self-determination. And mm-hmm. it's something that I truly feel every, you know, human, every community has a right to, to self-determine what the world and what their supports, what joy looks like to them. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with the uh, nitpicky word because <laughs> it matters. <laughs> this is Susan. I'm probably, I'm okay with it too, but I also, I am probably somebody who kind of plays in my head with it because it, the, the part that I'm playing with, and I'll, I'll just put it out there and you can tell me you know, where I may be missing something. But the empowerment piece, the word empower, I, I kind of can stumble on it because of just the mm. word power, which to me implies a dominant position one way or the other. But you surprised me when you said that empowerment, uh, you know, so that's where I thought you were going. But and then you went somewhere different because you were saying you want that person to feel empowered, but you the the enablement word works better for you. So I'm just trying to make sure I understand. Because mm-hmm. I, I think re- that, in a sentence, I would not say I seek to or we as an organization seek to empower others because that is really in that sentence what I'm framing it. How I'm framing it is that I have then am relinquishing some of my power to them. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's more along the lines of if self-empowerment is the way that you're describing something, then I think that that's awesome. Uh, okay. Enabling, I feel like, is more along the signs of along the lines of I have resources that I can then like, provide the folks the ability to support themselves or the ability okay. to self-determine. Yeah. That makes okay, I think I get it now. Like if I say our organization is about empowerment, that sort of implies this piece of I'm going to empower people, I'm going to do it versus I am going to enable people to self-determine what they need and get what they if I have that ability. Absolutely. That- that's uh, that's beautifully said actually. Okay. That's amazing. How quickly you learn. <laughs> well, it helps to sort of play with it. And this is one of the things that I find sometimes the most challenging in this work is how to just be willing to say, well, wait a minute, I don't understand that. Let me break down how I might be totally misusing something so mm-hmm. that I can understand it. And sometimes that is so hard to do, you know, when I really want to listen, but I also know, uh-oh, in my own bias, I'm getting myself all confused and probably missing an important point here unless I stumble and go back and potentially make a mistake. So this is why I wanted to make sure I understood. So Yeah. And speaking to folks like myself, where I've like self-selected, I put my hand up to say, I'm an educator. I'm an advocate. I'm here to listen. I'm here to guide. I'm here to support. I'm absolutely the right person to chat with in that regard. If you're having a conversation with someone that you do, you know, that you meet at the dog park and they say, <laughs> you know, maybe don't use empowerment, maybe use enable. May, that person may or may not have put their hand up to be an educator. It right. may not be good in that moment when they're just trying to have their coffee, but wanted to just drop a little education on you just yeah. as like a friendly neighbor to not get into that, that philosophical conversation potentially with them. I I would agree. I, I might just I might still inquire. Like, can I ask your question, or would you prefer we just have our coffee? You know? <laughs> yes, I agree. You know, I like the way you put that. You so I'm grateful for your willingness to educate as we go along here. <laughs> you know, now Emil, we met through the Haven when you did a workshop for like mm-hmm. 
through Haven. And it was, I, I just really enjoyed your style and how accessible, and you were educating us, which was great. And one of the things, Susan and I are two white women, we are in relationships, so there is that. But what sort of, I think before we were recording, you talked about the untapped potential that, for instance, white women have mm-hmm. in affecting the different environments towards- Absolutely. I mean- I feel like it's, you know, I'm not, it's not my lived experience. I'm a, I'm a person of color. I'm trans. I'm trans masculine, I guess it would be on the, the gender spectrum. I was socialized female my, the first 30 years of my life. But in my opinion, from my perspective, I think white women have a lot to offer. If you were to call this a movement, the movement towards equity, the movement towards justice, the movement towards true inclusion. And I think because of the fact that white women have access to spaces that many of us racialized folks don't have access to because of white privilege, but also because of just who you are and and who you're connected to, whether it's your peers, your family members, and folks that that have your lived experience of, of being white. And so there's this really fantastic ability to connect, you know, to someone on like a sibling level, on, you know, a parental level, or maybe it's like your your Uncle Bob, and you can have that conversation to help transform their their mindset or their opinions in a way that I would never could because I either don't have that relationship or there's an assumption made that, of course, I would have a stake in this, which is true. I mean, mm-hmm. I do. It's literally my life. My life is at stake for us mm-hmm. to for for folks to feel to allow me to to you know self-fulfill who I want to be in the world. I need for people to feel like they, that I could be included. But the other side of, for white women is that they have historically and currently are experiencing inequity, you know, gender inequity, the feminist movement. There is, there should be, or could be, turn out to say should, a connection to marginalization or inequity. And if white women really either, you know, remember that in their, it's in their DNA, you know, it's in their genes of to, to really understand what that is. That is like, even if we at times push it away where the microaggressions throughout the day, whether someone calls someone a shrill woman, as opposed to determined, whether the person is, you know, a B word versus someone who's very competitive. We sometimes push those, those things away because we just try to do our work. We just try to put our head down and achieve what we're trying to achieve and not let those things get us down. But all of those things are microaggressions. And that is absolutely something that is being experienced by another equity seeking group. So what a magical form of empathy that is at your fingertips that you could dive into and help you understand or start understanding where other folks are coming from. I love this, Emil, because so often, like when we're coaching women executives, they have gone numb to those microaggressions. Part of the process is waking up and, and being willing to go, ouch, that actually hurts. I don't want to just put my head down. I'm going to say something. And that leads to our area of expertise, which is conflict. Like, how do you have that conversation when it's been an ouch? Like, I'm not okay with you. You know, like I love your examples, the shrill woman versus the determined or the B word versus competitive Yet all those labels that whatever they are, could a white woman in corporate America could likely relate to um, mm-hmm. marginalized mm-hmm. if they and wake up. <laughs> absolutely. And microaggressions are, you know, as someone who experiences them, like a hundred of them, sometimes in a span of half of a day, mm-hmm. it, um, 
it is exhausting. It is exhausting. And it makes sense that someone would want to compartmentalize and try to move away from it. And I think many of us did it for years. I'm, I'm in my early forties and the way that I was raised was to, you know, to grin and bear it, you know, Mm -hmm. to turn my cheek to, we've like so famously heard when they go low, we go high. Right. So, you know, it's, it's essentially how I was raised. And I'm sure there are many folks that are within my age bracket or, or 10 or 15 years older that also were, were coached by our parents, potentially our mothers to do that. And I think we're at a point now where it's not that we want, I want folks to regress and really get to a point where they're going to dive into that pain, but more along the lines of that is a superpower of for empathy. And I think empathy is a superpower. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we could remember and actually connect with some of that, the stuff that comes up with those microaggressions, we can get a taste of what it feels like to be a part of that equity seeking group or to be marginalized. And that yeah. is powerful. Yeah. And I think a lot of times even it still takes courage it for, let's say the, the white woman who wakes up and it's out. And then the uncle Bob is saying something derogatory towards somebody, a transgender or whatever. And mm. it's, it's t- still having the courage to say, you know, I'm uncomfortable with what you're saying, Uncle Bob. This isn't, you know, this isn't working for me. And do you, are you aware of the impact that you're having, Uncle Bob? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, this is why I do the work that I do, right? This is why I run those, the workshops with organizations and coach, you know, corporate executive on this, because when we interrupt bias, it's not just for our workplaces. It's Mm -hmm. the first session that I do, and I've done it with the Haven, is called It Starts With You, like Mm -hmm. literally you. It's you also as a a letter U for unconscious bias, uncovering and understanding why it exists. But it also is you, the person, because change starts with individuals before we're going to impact organizations and before we're going to make a mark in the world. We each are individuals that are both, you know, implicitly involved in the systems uh, that we live in. And sometimes we're, we're complicit and we don't even realize. And so we transform ourselves in hopes of transforming others. It's so true. That is. And I, I remember I wasn't actually at the event you did with Haven, but Chris Marie was, and she talked about that. And I really liked how you started because I do think you can't affect change if you don't really understand yourself and you have to understand your own perspective and where you come from because we all have biases. Everyone and does, even, you know, <laughs> even your circle of influence, you know, you had us go through and you wrote like, and listeners, you could do this, like write the people that you regularly connect to in your world or ask their advice or, you know, mm. bounce ideas off of. And then you had us look at like, well, how close to you are they? Like are five to 10 years of your age? Are they the same gender, the same race, mm. the same, you know, you had us go down these things, sexuality, and if there are a lot of checks you didn't have, I think it was if you're, there's a lot of checks you didn't have a lot of diversity. There's a yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's called yeah. a it's called the circle of trust exercise. And, yes. and and you know what's interesting is that it's completely human to surround ourselves with people that have the same perspective as us, and it makes us feel safe. It's also mm-hmm. very like it was there from a survival perspective, from you know our primitive days to to surround ourselves with things that are familiar and comfortable. But it also really allows us to realize that we are really surrounding ourselves um, or are living in a vacuum. And Mm -hmm. even more so now with customization through, you know, being involved with the internet and social media platforms that we're just in this vacuum where we're only getting validated as far as our, our values, our thoughts, our perspectives, rather than being challenged. 
And so that exercise was really just a reminder. And it's a very visceral reminder because visual. You look yeah. at your table and you're like, oh, you know, I don't know if I can say the S word, but oh, yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> that is a lot of check marks when it comes to dimensions of difference because it's all about you, right? There is no hiding. Right. All, of those, all of those dimensions of difference were about you mm-hmm. and, and whether or not the people in your circle of trust and how they relate to you. And so it is a pretty powerful moment. And I remember looking in the faces of everyone on Zoom and I'm like, mm-hmm, here, here it is. Here's <laughs> yeah. the reckoning. It's happening right now. Yeah. And those are, I thought that it was a really kind of gentle, but nice way to have people see themselves and see the echo chamber or the vacuum that we're creating. I do want to, I want to talk about that from a a moment in terms of, so, so I do know in situations like we live in Montana and whitefish Montana, and really if, you know, our circle is going to be, if we, aside from that, we do more, much more broader spectrum work. If I look at where I live, if I'm trying to make my world add people of difference, I might be stuck because there really is not as much diversity here as there is somewhere else. And I've seen people try to fall, I don't know, try to find people mm. that are different. And I'm, yeah. I always, that worries me a little bit because it's like, okay, you're out there seeking, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> seeking yeah. to find. And, you know, the reality for me is, you know, I have, there are people who have very different values and different perspectives and life stories than mine here, which in and of itself has presented some incredible differences, which has at least started me on that journey versus trying to find people to fit maybe people of color where we may not have as many. So I'm looking at, okay, I'm going to look at people of very different socioeconomic backgrounds or political backgrounds, because that's so different. At least it's a place to start. Well, the circle of trust, the dimensions of difference actually include that. Um, It includes socioeconomic status, includes religious or spirituality beliefs, includes political beliefs or political thoughts and mindsets. But the thing is, I appreciate regionality. It actually is part of the circle of trust exercise as well, which is your place of origin or, or where you're from. Um, mm-hmm. So I pr- appreciate that there are certain towns and cities across you know, North America, across the world that really are homogenous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why you know, the secondary part of the exercise is drawing out, this is, you know, it's hard to talk about it out of context for the listeners here, but the second part of the exercise is to draw a larger circle around your circle of trust and call that the circle of influence, as Chris Marie mm-hmm. first mentioned, yes. because the expectation isn't for you to change who your circle of trust is. We're not saying, you know, all right, you know, you know, Mary, my dog walking friend, you're out. I'm going to go find myself <laughs> uh, Emmanuel instead. It, it's not. It's not about that. It's about essentially trying to transform how you think and is seeking different perspectives, whether it's reading books, listening to podcasts, following folks on social media that actually have that lived experience. So you're learning about their mm-hmm. life from their own voice, from their own experience and their own lens. And so it's about expanding your circle of influence and then mm-hmm. not only changing your perspective, but then also going back to that circle of trust and I challenge everyone in that session to then change the perspectives of the, of the people in their their circle as well. Yeah, that I would, love that. That. I, that I think makes sense. And I, I bring it up because I know, you know, we've just gone through this year with all sorts of things that have, you know, the pandemic itself has brought up all sorts of uncertainty and and put people's lives 
we're not all in the same boat, but we all have experienced a storm of some sort. And it also has brought up all of these issues around finally, you know, bringing them much more to the surface around social injustice, things that are going on. And one of my biggest fears is that, you know, we're investing, people are saying the right things maybe and doing some of the things, but is it really going to be sustainable? Will it make a difference? And, you know, that was something I, you know, because I've been, I guess I'm showing my age, but I, I was in the South in the 60s. I was in various places. I've watched these issues come up over and over and not necessarily always get to really sustainable change. So mm. I was curious your thoughts about that in terms of where we are now based upon, say, the last 12 months and all that's occurred. You know, I I will fully admit that I'm an idealist just as like my... <laughs> I'm going to the pre. I'm going to just put that out there. I am an idealist, and I think if I wasn't, I wouldn't be, you know, a student of Jedi of, of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, because it's really hard to get up every day and say, "Yep, I'm going to start," you know, mucking out that stall again. You know, I'm shoveling. <laughs> I'm going to shovel out that shit and try to make things cleaner and better for everyone. It's, but I think that idealism really helps me. What mm-hmm. I do think is different, and I'm not saying I want to honor my elders, I want to honor the folks that have really fought for trans rights, for fought mm-hmm. for for women's rights, fought for social justice for different immigrants and people of color. So I'm not saying that we are any better than those groups. What I do see as a shift is this understanding of how things intersect. So I know intersectionality is a big word that people think about these days, but I I want to get away from intersectionality from an identity perspective, but rather the fact that we're starting to see all the systems that we live in and how they connect to each other. So for Mm -hmm. example, you know, climate justice and climate action and climate change, we know that that is so important. And we know that the reckoning for climate change is upon us. But looking at that and how it intersects with social justice, when our climate is changing and the people that are going to be the most affected are the, are the most marginalized folks, we're going to have climate refugees globally, mm-hmm. let alone in, in the poorest communities of North America that are either like living too close to the water at the water's edge, or they're too far into the desert where there might be a lot of fires. There is going to be that intersection of both climate and social justice. So let's start working together now. There mm-hmm. is, you know, education, healthcare. We saw through the pandemic how important it is to think about healthcare and education and the intersection of poverty and the intersection of black lives and the intersection of of young folks and racialized folks and new immigrants. The pandemic has made it very clear that we need to rethink so many of our systems, our social justice systems, our justice systems when it comes to prisons and policing. We are thinking about intersectionality every single day. We may not realize it, but we're thinking about it. And I think that that's a wonderful thing when we start seeing all the systems that we as individuals connect with on a daily basis and how they could be reimagined. You know, abolishment is really intense and I think is important. I also think that reimagining things and rebuilding things so that they work better for so many more people is extremely important. And I often say to the folks that are like, when they hear words of changing systems and they get scared because they wonder where they're going to be at the end of the day, if they're a part of a group that was really benefited from those systems, I remind them that there are no shadows being cast. Rather, it's a broadening the scope of light so that more people can 
and have it shone on them. I love that. That <laughs> I, And I do think, you know, I like what, I really appreciate what you're saying about that, the the way things are beginning to kind of, that I'm Inter- not saying inter- intersect. <laughs> sectionality. There we go. Uh, of that. And I do think that is true. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of times people's ability to come together and actually imagine, like, I like what, you know, like imagine something different that does actually bring more light to more people and not cast that shadow. That's a great way to think about it. Um, Versus, oh, something's um, going to be taken away yeah. and, oh, I got to hold on tighter. Yeah. Sort mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Because, I mean, well, I mean, maybe it's because we live down in the States and maybe it's a little different in Canada, but we still have a lot of very positional people who I think are very concerned about their own individual rights and aren't very good at seeing things in the systems perspective. And so getting people to a to sit around a table and actually talk about what how this may impact things is going to be a challenge. And yet mm-hmm. I reimagining it even, you know, don't think about what you're just don't only think about it, about what you're going to lose. Think about what we're going to gain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know. yeah, yeah. So much. There's so much to gain. Yes. We really believe that. I mean, at a, even inside an organization, I mean, I think businesses are responding because they have to, we hope it drives real change because we think having diverse people around the executive table, let's just say, or any table is going to give more diverse thought. You're going to respond to more customers' needs, you know, whatever the- Oh yeah. uh, You'll identify problems before they ever go public because there's so many different ways. You know, I remember once talking to an organization and this has actually absolutely been researched by the McKinsey report back in 2015 about the more diverse your teams are, the more efficient they are, the increase of revenue is I think 30%. And it's massive, just the actual numbers behind how diversity improves an organization. But Mm -hmm. the thing that people don't realize is that it also increases friction because of course, you, yeah. When, you know, if you have a circle with everyone thinking the same, we're all nodding to the same ideas, we're all, we're all shaking our heads to the same ideas, that the moment that we bring in diversity perspectives, someone else is like, actually, you know, that we, there's a risk here that we haven't thought of. And then there's friction of no, 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 but we've had this idea, we've nurtured this idea for 12 months, it's about to go live. Are you kidding? And and friction increases, but the other piece that people don't know, and maybe they know, and I'm going to tell you right now, the antidote to that friction is inclusion. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. The antidote to that friction is, is, you know, inviting diversity to the table and then having that diverse perspective feel valued and feel heard. Yes. And, And truly, truly using it because it is a gift. It is absolutely a gift. That so fits our, what, you know, our podcast is the beauty of conflict. Our books are the beauty of conflict because it is including that different idea we think is really so powerful for the humans to feel included, but also the outcomes are so powerful. It, I, mm-hmm. we, that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I just want to, I want to drop into something and I know we're going to wrap up soon, but just even this, the whole piece around pronouns, Emil, because mm. I thought right before we got on, your pronoun is they, them, Mm -hmm. and I have made the mistake of saying she, Mm -hmm. and let's just say I said that to Susan, well, she needs to leave, Susan, we need to end the podcast. (laughs) How how might you handle that, Emil? Because I think that would be really helpful for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, misgendering someone is going to happen. And I have been misgendered, obviously. And what I find is a really, really awesome thing is like two things. If someone's wondering how they can do better in the world is to introduce yourself with your pronouns. In my mind, it feels like it's a small thing, you know, for folks to do. And it, the impact is huge. Because if let's say the three of us are going out and we're going out when post-COVID world, going out for a coffee and we, we run into someone and you introduce myself and you're introducing yourselves, maybe they don't know Susan yet. And if you introduce yourselves with your pronoun, then I don't feel so othered. There's mm-hmm. less, there's mm-hmm. like literally less of us and them because I'm them, right? So uh, <laughs> if someone, if we could just go back to grade two or grade three and remember how important pronouns are, I would really love that, you know, yes. where, where we could just introduce ourselves with our pronouns. And then if you get it wrong, you know, it depends on the context. If harm is actually caused, absolutely apologized for it. But often um, it's just, you know, a mistake and you want to move on from that mistake, but you want to make sure the person feels that you understand that it was a mistake. So if someone then corrects you and says, actually, it's they, them, then you say thank you, as opposed to saying sorry. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that because Mm -hmm. if I say to them, oh, actually, it's they, them, and they say, oh, thank you, we can then move on from that conversation, which makes it you know easier for me as well in that moment. And I also don't feel like I have to take care of you because if you say sorry, I have, I was socialized mm-hmm. female for the first 30 years of my life. I will personally, I will say it's okay. Or I will say something like, mm-hmm. I know you're trying or, you know, it's all right. And then I will feel bad for you feeling bad. And maybe <laughs> it's because I'm Canadian and we get into an apology cycle where then you say you're really sorry. And then I say, I'm sorry. And it's just, you know, no, if someone just, just says, thank you, we could just <laughs> move on. Let's drink well, our coffee before it gets cold, you know? There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I love hey, that. I, can I do one more of my little sure, educational sure. things but just for me? You yes. don't have to answer if you don't want to, uh, <laughs> Emil. But since I have you and I can't do this at the dog park with someone, if they, you know, because, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's so the pronoun thing, you know, I, you know, I don't actually, I'm probably an interesting perspective, but my sister is convinced that I'm transgender. I, I don't actually know that I believe that, but I haven't always understood they, them. Mm. And when you said it, I'm not, I thought, well, is it more fluid in that area? And how does it, how would I educate myself about that if I wanted to understand how I would do the pronouns? Yeah. I mean, so there's two, I think there's two aspects to that question. One is the use of singular they, I think also from a grammatic perspective, I think is good for us to just like put it out there that we've been using it for since, you know, for hundreds of years. I think the first, originally when English was first written, if there wasn't uh, explicit gender, then the the singular they was used. And when and if someone even currently forgets their umbrella at the office, and we wonder if they are going to get rained on when you mm-hmm. know because the weather forecast shows that there's going to be storm later on, I wonder if they're going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. we use it yeah. all the time. And that's so, great that you're pointing that out. Yeah. That. And so it that's all it is, is the fact that I currently don't identify with the gender. I'm non-binary. I am trans, but I um, I just don't identify with the particular gender. And they, them, for me, is a really nice, comfortable spot to be where it's like, hey, I met Emil. They're great. They're really funny. You know, I, <laughs> I, I love their smile. You know, we could go on. We could just go on for <laughs> okay. those here. We yeah. could. I would agree with all those things. Oh, no, but... <laughs> 
I want to say thank you. That was that was actually helpful because I, you know, that was something I really wasn't exactly sure of. I've seen it brought up a lot, but I don't actually hear people talk about how like became the different pronouns that get used. So I appreciate you sharing that with me. Hmm. And that's just my story, right? I mean, <laughs> there's so many different ways of queer folks and non-binary folks, you know, utilizing that word for themselves. But for the most part, the way that I use it is, is I try to have it just flow very easily in conversation. I don't want to make it hard on anyone, but I do also not want, I don't want to be gendered in a way that I don't feel comfortable either. That makes sense. I okay. love it. Yes. This is Chris Marie, she, her. <laughs> I'm wondering, Emil, is there anything you would like to kind of leave our listeners with as we wrap up? Because we've loved having you on our show. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I would just say, you know, I kind of queer hot tip in there already where, you know, when you're introducing yourselves, please use your pronouns. And that way you'll find that other people that you may not even realize they might use pronouns with someone, you know, with another group of friends and you just don't know yet because um, it's never been brought up. But if you start Mm -hmm. modeling that, all of a sudden you become a safe place to land for someone who's maybe their kid has started to use different pronouns or they're, mm-hmm. they're you know, starting to explore their identity. And before you know it, you're a safe place to have that conversation. So then, you know, doing some of that, if you are a safe place to have that conversation, yeah. you know, um, and the other piece would be, you know, knowing whose land you're located on. If you are a settler on Turtle Island, otherwise known as North America, I'm on the Salaman Nation here in Powell River. And I think it's really important for us to only acknowledge, but to really look at forms of reconciliation with the Indigenous communities whose lands we're located on and, and work on. So really just educating yourself in that way. And then, you know, if you are curious about learning more about other perspectives to think about, you know, expanding your influences, similar to what we talked about, the circle of influence, you know, starting to really listen to people's perspectives from their own perspectives. So not the white person who wrote an essay on, on racialized folks, but, you know, Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you are looking for a white person's perspective on racism, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, and she has a lot of really great YouTube videos on it as well, is a great place to start if you're looking at a place to start. If you're at a point in a different place of your journey, then there are so many different films, books, podcasts, and people to follow. And so I'm happy to follow up with the resource guide if that's helpful. That would be great. Yes. This is awesome. And maybe we can put that in the show notes yes. for our listeners and your, along with your website so people can contact you directly. Great. So thank you, Emil. This yes. has just been terrific. And I hope this isn't the last time we chat. Thank you for listening to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. We know conflict, stress, and uncertainty can be hard to navigate. We want to support you becoming more resilient, able to speak up, and have healthy relationships and business teams that thrive. Connect to us on LinkedIn at Thrive Inc. Learn how we can work with you, your team, or your company at thriving.com. That's www.thriveinc.com. We hope you have a peaceful, productive, and beautiful day. Take care.